Peace be with you, church. Welcome to our Sunday gathering, and I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. This evening we start in chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, that we get this privilege to come as your people before your face and worship you and hear from you. So, Father, whatever words are not from you, my words, may they fall to the ground, and may your words go forth and bear much fruit, Father, for you and for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. Church, you may be seated. So, we are in a short series looking at the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And in these chapters, Paul shows us how or what a gospel or Christ-centered church looks like. At this point, the Corinthian church is very immature. Uh, We see how they are idolizing certain leaders that have come through and taught in the church. Uh, They are dividing over them. They're trying to be Also, they're trying to be relative and relate to the immoral culture around them in a very wrong way. They are ashamed of the pure message of the cross. They are bringing in world's wisdom into the church, trying to appeal to the church. And instead of having an impact on the culture around them, The world has entered the Corinthian church. They have lost sight of Jesus, and they are devouring themselves. And so, first week, we saw how Paul makes it clear that we, as a church, the church does not belong to any man. The church is Christ's. So Paul says, don't idolize, don't worship leaders, worship Jesus, the pastor, the preacher's job is to point you to Christ and not himself. And last week, we saw how Paul made a defense of the gospel, the gospel that the Corinthian church was beginning to be ashamed of. Paul says that the preaching of the cross for the forgiveness of sins, yes, it is foolishness for the perishing, but it is wiser than any wisdom of man. It is stronger than the wisdom and philosophies of man. 
And Paul tells them the gospel preached is how God is pleased to save men. That is the path that God chose. This thing that the world considers shameful, foolish. This is the path that God chose to save men. And in our text today, Paul will show us how the gospel is to be preached. Paul explains why he preaches the way that he preaches. I don't know how your youth youth groups went when you were growing up. I remember one of the youth groups that I went to, it brought the whole package. Um, every once in a while, all the smoke, the lights, uh, the rock band, everything came out. The graphics on the, on the screen flashing. And then towards the end of the evening, the preacher would come out and he would say, everyone close their eyes, bow their heads, forget about the music, forget about all the lights, forget about the smoke, and just focus on Jesus. Just get through all this noise and just focus on Jesus. And you've probably experienced something like this. And the question is, if to focus on Jesus, I need to forget about the lights, forget about the band, forget about the smoke, then why is this stuff here in the first place? Why do we need these things if when we get to the point, when we get to what actually matters, I need to somehow pretend that all of these distractions do not exist? For some Christians today, it's hard to even imagine worshiping and singing without this kind of a grand production show. But is this how God intended worship to look like? What does God say our worship should look like? The point of this example is that the church has added so many extra things to what we call worship. And we add these things, we do this oftentimes in the name of making worship more attractive, more captivating, more of an experience, more relevant. And for the sake of attracting, we add all these extra things. And in the end, we actually detract from what really matters. And we need to make statements like forget about the music, the lights, the flashing, all of this stuff, and just focus on Jesus. If we have done this, if the church at large has done this with what we call worship, with singing, we added all these things to it. What about preaching? What kind of expectations, what kind of extra things have we tacked on to the preaching of God's word? What does God say preaching should look like? And this is exactly what Paul is dealing with in our text. The Corinthian church, they're bored with the preaching of the cross of Jesus. They are also realizing that the pure presentation of the cross for the, for the forgiveness of sins is repulsive to the world. The world does not like this message. They make fun of it. It's folly to them. And so the Corinthian church decided to fix this problem. Their solution was adopting the styles of speaking 
that were valued and loved by the culture around them. The culture of this time was heavily influenced by Greek philosophers. The culture of this time was obsessed with philosophy and reasoning. Uh, Acts chapter 17, I'm paraphrasing, Paul goes to Athens and he sees all of these people at the temple at Mars Hill. And, and, and it, Paul says that all they're doing, they're, they're there, they're, they're doing nothing. They're just waiting to hear something new, some new wisdom from, from someone that would come by. And Paul took advantage of that opportunity. But you get the picture. You may have seen uh, Raphael's famous painting. It's called The School of Athens, showing 12 philosophers sitting or standing around reasoning together. This was the culture of that time. This is what they valued. They loved reasoning. They loved philosophy and just looking at how things work in the world. And so uh, a teacher of philosophy, one who specialized in this, was called a sophist. And famous sophists, what they would do is they would travel throughout the Roman Empire and they would go from city to city and for a fee, they would stop in a city and the people would gather in the court, the, 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 center, the central square of the city to listen to the sophists and to ask them questions. This was their type of entertainment. This was their type of uh, going to the movies. And good sophists, they were able to answer any question the crowd would throw at him. They, were, they prided themselves in this. The sophists knew everything from the most existential questions to the most basic questions. And so someone might uh, out of the, ask a question out of the crowd and say, what is the meaning of life? And so in these beautiful and eloquent words, the sophists would go to describe the meaning of life. Someone might say, Something simple as, what is water, or how do birds fly, or what is death? Any, any kind of questions, the sophist was able to answer them, and he would do so very eloquently, very beautifully. And the people, those who would listen, they would be in awe of what he was saying. They were lofty. They were the know-it-alls. The rest of the audience would be blown away by the wisdom of these teachers. There was no question that the sophist could not answer. They were the celebrities and the stars of that time. And so the Corinthian church was tempted to bring this type of eloquence, this type of sophistry into the church. They might have said, hey guys, you don't have to wait for the next philosopher to roll through town. Just come to church on Sunday. We have eloquent speakers preaching every single week. They added extra stuff to the message of the gospel. And as we know, they gravitated towards eloquent teachers in the church to be more in line with the world, to be less offensive and more acceptable, more relevant to those around them. Going down this path, though, meant they had to distance themselves from Paul. 
So in the church, some men rose up who were trying to convince the rest of the people in the church to leave Paul behind. He's old school. He's irrelevant. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 gives us a lot of context for what was going on in the church. How there was an active ploy against Paul. And so knowing this context, it gives us clarity to what Paul says in our text as he's making a defense for himself. And he makes a defense for the way he preached and why he preached the way he did. I'm going to read our text again. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Being a missionary, just like the sophists, Paul also went from city to city. He traveled and he taught in the churches. He would even go in the square of the city and try to strike a conversation there. But that is where all the similarities stop between Paul and the sophists. Verse 1, we see that unlike the sophists, Paul did not come to proclaim the testimony of God with lofty or grand speech. The reason Paul is saying that is because the Corinthians, the culture, they loved lofty speech. They try to bring it into the church. In verse 2, Paul also says that he did not come as a know-it-all. He did not come like those guys who pride themselves in knowing everything. He says, I decided to know nothing except the crucified Jesus Christ. The sophists who were eloquent showed no sign of weakness. They prided themselves in that. In verse 3, we see, unlike them, Paul was in Corinth in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. The sophist's speech was eloquent. It was plausible. The people were just in awe of their speech. They were charismatic. They could captivate the attention of the crowd with beautiful words. And in verse 4, Paul says he did not use such tactics. His words were not plausible. And so if Paul refused to use and to add the popular methods of communication of that time to preach the gospel, if he refused the techniques of the sophists that the crowds loved, What did Paul rely on to reach his hearers? What did he rely on to tell them the greatest news ever? How could he convince them of the truth of the cross? And end of verse 4, and end of verse 5, 
we see what Paul relied on. He says, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's clearly stated here, Paul says that he relied on the Holy Spirit to come, to show up, and move in power. That is what Paul relied on. As Paul preached, he understood that the task before him was impossible. What he wanted to happen as he preached, he knew he had no power to make it happen. For two reasons. The first one is that the message of the cross, the gospel itself, what God did to sinners is so amazing. No wise words, no lofty speech can capture or explain it. We're speechless. Paul had profound revelation. And yet he saw how he lacks the words to explain Christ. All our words fall flat on the ground trying to, and Paul knew it. He understood this daunting task, and he dared not rely on the wisdom of his own, let alone the wisdom and the tactics of this world. He understood that, the on, that only God through his power the Holy Spirit is able to make the gospel known to the hearers. The second impossible task before Paul was the audience. The listeners, as Paul preached in Corinth, as he went into that city, his listeners were pagans. Their hearts were hearts of stone. They were dead in their sin. They hated God. They loved their pleasures. They loved worshiping their idols. And Paul knew that even his best arguments and words had no power to save these people and convince them to believe. And this is why Paul relied on two things. These two things alone have the power to raise dead men to God and give faith and repentance of sin. First is the message of the gospel. Christ crucified. And the second is the Spirit of God who regenerates the dead hearts. Those are the two things that Paul relied on. He dared not rely on his wisdom. He dared not rely on the wisdom of this world. He relied on the gospel of Christ. He relied on the Holy Spirit who regenerates the hearts of sinners. Paul uses similar language in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 5. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he, excuse me, some water. <laughs> Thanks. <clears throat> Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he chose you. Because, the, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul gives full 
credit to the conversion of the Thessalonians, to the power of God, to the Spirit of God at work. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10, Paul gives multiple examples of how this power was demonstrated in those people. Verse 5, conviction came. Conviction over sin, conviction of truth. Verse 6, they became imitators of the apostles and of the Lord. This means their way of living changed. They imitated Christ. Verse 6, also, uh, they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There was persecution. There was a cost to be paid to believe. They counted the cost, and with joy, they believed. Verse 9, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They have abandoned their idolatry. In verse 10, we read, they waited for the Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They longed for Christ to return. This is how the power of God was demonstrated among them. It was a complete life change, complete transformation. And Paul celebrated that. He rejoiced in that. Paul says, this is how I know that you are chosen by God and that the gospel came to you in power. He's looking at their lives, looking at what they love, what they hate, how they have been changed. And he says, that is the proof that God was at work and is at work in you. The very same thing happened when Paul came to Corinth and preached Christ crucified to them. In verse 5, we see another reason why Paul did not use words of eloquence, why he dared not touch worldly tactics to preach the gospel. He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul feared. Paul was cautious that if he uses his own wisdom, if he speaks eloquently and they come to faith, the Corinthians will rest in, trust in him or other men and not in the power of God. And listen, Paul knew how to be eloquent. Paul knew how to hold his ground. He was trained by the best in Jerusalem. He was very knowledgeable. He was a brilliant man. Just read Romans. Read any of his letters. He's so rational, logical. He is brilliant. I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, but in the early days of Harvard, they used the letter of Romans to train lawyers on how to properly build a case way, way, way long time ago. Acts 17, we see how in Athens, Paul went to Mars Hill, to the Greek temples, and he reasoned with the best and the brightest that Greece had to offer. Yet when he came to Corinth, he laid all of his eloquence aside. Knowing the daunting task before him, he preached 
Christ and he waited for God to do his work in power. And he says, I did that so that those who believed would not say, man, I got saved through the amazing ministry of Paul. What a man. Those were the good old days. What wisdom, what power. Paul feared this. And Paul despised this. Paul is fighting against this. And yet here we are a few years later, and what Paul was attempting to prevent has gripped the Corinthian church as they attempted to make preaching sound more like the sophists of their time. And so Paul once again has to make it clear to the church, it is not eloquence or wisdom that saved you. It is not my wisdom that has given life to you. Rather, it is God who saves. And he does this through the faithful preaching of the gospel and his Holy Spirit who alone is able to change hearts. And so Paul's message to them is don't mess with the gospel. Don't mess with the crucified Savior. Don't dilute it. By trying to be relevant, you are doing the complete opposite, and you are emptying the cross of its power, as he said in verse 17 of chapter 1. You are making church man-centered rather than Christ-centered. Looking at the church landscape, Christian landscape, of the past 50, 60 years in the West, what would you say the church, Church of America, looks like most? What path did we choose? Is our church today the church that Paul was imploring the Corinthians to be, or are we more like the church Corinthians wanted to become? Have we unapologetically and faithfully proclaimed the cross of Jesus without borrowing the tactics of this world? Or have we become more like the world and the culture around us by bringing their tactics in? Which direction did we choose, would you say? 1970s was the start of the megachurch movement. And one of the things that followed was the seeker-sensitive philosophy of ministry. It just spread throughout the churches. And many pastors, their philosophy of ministry was, how can we bring the seekers in? And so, the seekers were the unchurched. And so the seekers came first. Everything was geared towards them in the church. The music... The preaching, everything was about how to get them into the church and then how do we make them comfortable to keep them in the church. The entire liturgy of the church shifted towards the seekers. And this meant the gospel had to be dialed back. It was still in there, but it was stripped and emptied of its power. It was stripped of its offense. 
Worldly tactics began to be adopted. Churches became cool. They became trendy. The pastor became a comedian, an inspirational guru, and his job was to make people motivated, make them laugh, impress them, and give them, you know, a few principles from scriptures that will help them in life, but entertain them. The gospel, the pure word, became boring. The call to transformation was forgotten. Preacher's job was to inspire instead of call people to be transformed. And so here's the question, 50 years later, how are we doing? Has going down the path of the Corinthian church helped the church make an impact on the world, or have we become more like the world? Most would say, looking at the aftermath, the church has become more like the world. In an attempt to become relevant, so many churches have become irrelevant. Church attendance statistics have plummeted. So church, what must we do to be faithful and centered on Christ? What must we do for God to use us to actually transform us and save people? And Paul's answer is clear. The power is not in us. It is not in our abilities. It is not in our wise speech. The power is not in adopting worldly wisdom or tactics. It is not even in programs or events that the church can take on. The power is all God's. The power is in the gospel of Jesus, and the power is in the Holy Spirit who alone can save. God loves his church, and he seeks to save through faithful local churches. But listen, he will not share his glory with any man, and God will not share his glory with the world. By adopting worldly tactics, we are asking God to share his glory with the world. He will not do so. And so church, we must have a proper expectation of the gathering. We must have a biblical expectation of what it means to hear the preaching of God's word. What it means to gather together. We don't come here to get to be entertained. A lot of folks, they want to be entertained. It's not why we're here. We don't come here to be inspired or motivated. That's been the shift over the past 50 years to inspirational. This man, this person, this preacher makes me feel inspired to do something. We don't come here 
to serve ourselves. It's not about us here. We come here first and foremost to stand before the face of God and to give him the glory that is due his name. That is the first thing we come to do. We come here to hear the word of God preached, to sit under his word, and to be transformed by its power. We come here to reset our gaze on the crucified and victorious Jesus, to remember what Christ has done. And as we do, God moves in power both to save and transform. As foolish as the world thinks what's happening in here, as they may think it is folly, but it is the very power of God that is able to transform. And here's what this means for us. As we come, as we gather, we must do so prayerfully. When we understand that it is not our own brilliance or wisdom or the ability of one or another preacher, when we realize that it is only the power of God, we must come prayerfully. In almost every epistle, Paul says, pray for me that God would give me the words to speak. Paul had so little trust in his own ability and his own wisdom, even though he was a brilliant man. Ask God to give words to those who preach. Pray that I or others would not be ashamed of the cross, that we would not be ashamed of the word of God especially when there is so much pressure on me and on other preachers in this church to be ashamed of the word of God. Pray for yourselves. Pray that the word of God would fall on fertile soil, that it would bear much fruit and transform God's people. Pray for others. Pray for the brothers and sisters who come into this place. Pray for those who do not know Christ who come here, that God would be at work in them. Church, we must be a people who realize and know that it depends on the power of God to move within and among us. And so we must pray that he would. And church, as we pray and as we come, Expect God to move. Have faith that he will move and that he will draw many to himself, that he will draw you to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, Lord, just clearly telling us, God, in this time of confusion that your word brings clarity to what kind of a church we are to be what kind of people we are to be. Lord, I pray and ask that you would forgive us that so often we turn aside that we adopt worldly tactics to attract, to maybe make the gospel less offensive, more relevant. Father, forgive us of that. Father, I pray that this church 
and the faithful churches in this city and state would proclaim Christ and him crucified, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would know that it is the only thing that can save. And Father, I pray that we would be a praying church, praise for the gatherings, and who expects you to come and move and transform us and also save those who do not believe. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, that you do not abandon us, even when we go, when we go astray, Lord. You bring us back to yourself. Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.